out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the American performance artist, actress, playwright. It's the one and only Penny Arcade, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff. I know. So... This is the interview. So after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years and that moment where everything changes. Anyway, this is Penny in conversation. Enjoy. Yes, 1962, when I discovered the radio, and it was the time of all the girl groups. So it was the, you know, Shangri-Las and the Chiffons and um, Ronnie Spector and all those amazing, um, and a lot of, it was a lot of ska-influenced stuff, you know, um, Lollipop and um, uh, Locomotion, you know. So it was, you know, very intense music. Um, I discovered it at, at a little fair, you know, these little fairs would come with rides and things. And they were like the first, my first experience of kind of an alternative world of carnies. And, you know, um, uh, at night with lights and, you know, it was quite near my house. So, you know, one was allowed to go there and, um, all the rides were, all the carnies, of course, played the latest rock and roll. And in 1962, the latest rock and roll was all those magnificent Phil Spector, Wall of Sound yes. um, uh, girl groups. Which kind of, yes, must have sounded very different. Did, were your parents at all kind of had a musical or cultural sort of interest or were they? Well, um, I'm, my parents were immig- Italian immigrants. So I did used to play, they had like a big collection of 78s. And when, whenever anybody left the house and I was left alone, I would play those records and throw myself around the room with great passion. Yes. You know. I, I could imagine it's it, it would have been, it would have been an amazing experience. Well, how old were they when they sort of came to America from Italy? Well, my mother was sixteen or seventeen when she came, and she was a big record collector at that time. And my father uh, came much later. He came when he was thirty-two. Um in 1947 and i don't know much about my father's taste in music though no that's amazing did you um at that stage where where were you where did the family uh, locate themselves and sort of um... well they were in a, in a factory town called new britain connecticut where of course connecticut was one of the first states and everything is named after places in england you know like i'm surrounded by Hartford and, you know, all the towns around us are Newington and Bristol. I mean, everything's named after the UK. Yes, Stradbrook. <laughs> so it was a, a work. So it's a working class. It was 
you know, a mid-sized factory town. It was the um, hardware capital of the world in the 1950s with factories downtown that ran 24-7, three shifts a day. Um, we had a lot of, uh, I mean, almost everyone growing up, almost everyone I knew was first generation from somewhere. Like yeah. their parents were from Lebanon or Russia or Lithuania or Poland or Italy or somewhere, you know. And also a, a lot of migrants, black Americans from the South, because, of course, there was all that work there. And um, oh, just a sec, somebody's beeping me. Okay, I got rid of them. Um, <laughs> and so I always say that you know, walking downtown meant walking through miles of tool and tool and die factories and the constant pounding of the ball bearings. So it was like a kind of chukka 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 chukka. So I always say that um, the backbeat of rock and roll was pounded into me early. Yes, absolutely. I know Iggy Pop said the same thing when he was growing up in the 60s and 70s in Detroit, hearing the sound of the Cars. Well, he was he was growing up in the fifties and sixties because he's he's older than I am, <laughs> and I yes. knew I knew Iggy I knew Iggy when he first came to New York. Yes, which was amazing. Mm. Yeah, that was that was something else. So then, as the sixties progressed, obviously this was kind of exciting kind of time culturally. I mean, what was it like right. with your kind of family during that stage? How did how well? They... I left home. I left home very early. I ran away when I was 13 and got put into Borstal, so into a Catholic Borstal run by monastic nuns with like a, a tall wall that surrounded it, and we were locked in. And there, it was sort of a 17th century existence. And, you know, it was a soft core reform school. And it was perfect for me because I liked to read, and I was, you know, introduced so all these monastic nuns who were really quite young, they were all probably in their 20s. And I was introduced to the little prince and the prophet and Martin Buber, like quite a rarefied intellectual um, world that, that I was privy to. And then, of course, that was the time that 1964, 65, was hoot nannies and folk music was on the rise and so you know I was exposed to that to Dylan and all of that and I got very 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 into into that and then when I got out of there I was 16 1966 into 1967 well 67 was the summer of love and that's, of course, when I discovered Van Morrison and Jimi Hendrix. And, you know, I was inutterably contemporary. So Janis Joplin, but there was also, you know, a wide, we were exposed. I ended up in New York in 1967 and started going to the Fillmore. And Bill Graham used to program all kinds of people, you know, so he'd have Ray Charles and Nina Simone or Aretha Franklin, you know, opening for big rock acts, you know, so Buddy Guy and 
you know, I really got into Chicago blues. And I've always been kind of a fanatical backcountry blues aficionada. That's amazing. Because 67, obviously, was sort of with the honeymoon of that sort of psychedelic period, like you mentioned, right. Summer of Love, because right. in, in San Francisco, they had the, was it the gathering of the tribes in San Francisco, Golden yeah. Gate Park with people like yeah. Jefferson. But I also, I must say, I do remember that um, I did have uh, Beatle posters on my bedroom wall. So yes. that was like, that was like 1960s. Five, I guess, something like that. And Sergeant Pepper um, came along a few years. No, yeah. before it was before. Yes. So, so yeah, Sergeant Pepper was, was sixty-seven. It was. Yeah. I want to hold your hand, time. Yes, we yeah. were all very optimistic. Did you? Did the sort of the dark side of the sixties? Had you? Did you start to sort of experience any of the sort of when the party started to get a little bit kind of tricky um, during that kind of the last? Well, I part? mean, I ended up. I ended up in New York when I was seventeen in 1967 and you know being a homeless teenager and the only people I knew were a couple of junkie drag queens that I had met in Provincetown the gay capital of the eastern seaboard um and so I think the first music I was exposed to in New York was the Velvet Underground right and so I was already in that underground milieu and I, actually right now I've just been writing um, I'm writing a, an episodic memoir musical 10 episodes and we've just been doing the first episode yeah. which is number well the first one we're, we're presenting is episode 3 and it's called Superstar Interrupted and it's about 1967 to nineteen seventy. Three, well, 1974. It goes into 1974. And um, so I'm actually talking about when it turned dark in 1969. Yeah. So that was marked by the Manson murders and by Altamont. And, you know, there just was, um, you know, a breakdown of, you know, of that very, very idealistic period that really only lasted from 66 to, to 69. Yes, yeah, so and then it, then it definitely did go slightly. And then you had the death of Brian Jones, then, then Jimi right. Hendrix, Jim Morrison and right. Janis Joplin. I mean, that was that's right. a terrible way to end a decade, really, isn't it? So um, yeah. yeah. But before that, because I did a few interviews with people from the Coquettes, like Fayette and yeah. Pam Tent and also Scrumbly, and Rumi, yeah. did you come across that kind of performance arts um, kind of community? Look, before before the Cockettes, before Hibiscus George Harris ever thought about doing the Cockettes, he was completely influenced by the Playhouse of the Ridiculous. Oh yes, and I was an original member of the Playhouse of the Ridiculous. I became a member in 1968 when I was 18 long before the Cockettes ever, ever put on their first piece of glitter. And unfortunately, all of them, including Rumi, have no idea where, where George Harris Hibiscus got the idea. And that glitter drag scene, which like 
like the Cockettes, included biological women like me, was already totally thriving in 1967 in the East Village. And Hibiscus grew up in the East Village. And he went out to California. And he met, um, oh gosh, uh, Irving Rosenthal, right. who had been involved with Jack Smith. And Irving Rosenthal showed hibiscus pictures, you know, for, of Jack Stills from Flaming Creatures in 1962. And George Harris combined these images that he saw from Jack Smith with what he had experienced in the East Village with the Playhouse of the Ridiculous. And that's how the Cockettes were born. But sadly, none of those West Coast people know the history. No. They think they invented it, which is hysterically funny to me. Yes, they have controlled the narrative, haven't they, actually? Absolutely. Although I'm friends with Rumi and, uh, you know, Rumi, of course, came to New York, like when they came for their disastrous performance in 1971, because, you know, we were doing theater and it was, you know, very, uh, what can I say? I don't know what adjective to use, but, you know, we rehearsed for months and months and months at a time and improvised on scripts. And, you know, they came and they were used to just swanning around on stage with no, you know, discernible text or show. So, of course, it was a disaster when they got here. But Rumi came and stayed and became involved with the Palm Casino Review, which was the Angels of Light. Most of the Angels of Light were in that. And that was Shayla Bacall's Palm Casino Review. And I believe that was done like in 1974, like yes. multiple times. Did you feel yeah. like the when the Cockettes did that performance with you know like the member you know in front of people like yeah. from the from the factory? Did you feel like at that stage they had slightly been caught out that they they weren't as good as they had thought they were on the West Coast? Well, I think that they were very innocent. I think that you know, you know, look, great art happens under harsh circumstances, and San Francisco was very easy circumstances. You know, so they were just playing dress up and swanning about, you know, it's not like they're, you know, in New York with John Vaccaro's Playhouse of the Ridiculous, which was like the Rolling Stones to Charles Ludlum's Beatles in his theater of the Ridiculous. Um, we were drawing through Vaccaro on all of his early experiences with Jack Smith and with um, uh, with the Poets Theater, with Diane De Prima and Leroy Jones. So, you know, there was a gravitas to us, even though we were covered in glitter. And we were, we created the punk movement. The punk movement came out of the Playhouse of the Ridiculous. All the early acts at CBGB's were connected with John Vaccaro whether it was um, Wayne County 
or Ruby and the Rednecks or Elda Stiletto, um, you know, whose band, the Stilettos, um, you know, introduced Debbie Harry and, you know, Chris Stein was the guitarist for the Stilettos. And then he and Debbie went on to form Blondie from there. And then there was David Johansson, who was completely influenced by the Playhouse of the Ridiculous and the back room at Max's. And that was all kind of exploded in when Danny Fields brought Iggy Pop um, from Detroit to New York. And, you know, Iggy wasn't the main attraction. The main attraction was the MC5. But Danny, with his prescience, recognized something really original in Iggy. So Iggy became our friend and started hanging out at Max's. Of course, we all called him Jim. Nobody called him Iggy. And then he did his first performance in the back room at Max's. And, you know, that was the furthest thing away from commercial rock and roll. And all of us went, oh, wow, <laughs> you know, we're already doing this. I mean, you know, if 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 this can get a record deal, then so can we. And that's how, you know, the New York Dolls, you know, David Johansson, Patti Smith, everybody kind of capitulated after that, you know. But, you know, it's it, there's such a complex secret history to it all. It was such a complex. Because I know, I remember hearing David Bowie talking about his some of his early influences with the sort of performance artists of the 60s. And he mentions the living, is it living theatre company and also bread and puppet theatre company as well. I don't know. Did Yeah, well, was, he was, you know, he was, you know, he was an art, you know, um, what can you say? The man was obsessed with all art forms, particularly alternative uh, forms. But the secret history of David Bowie is that in 1971, Andy Warhol's Pork, directed by Tony Ingrassia, went to the Roundhouse in London. And at this time, um, David Bowie still had long hair and was kind of a hippie blob, you know? <laughs> floppy. And then floppy. he went and then he went to see Pork with, you know, the glitter, and it was Playhouse of the Ridiculous style performance, you know. And of course he was attracted by the idea of Andy Warhol and all that. And that's where he met Tony Zanetta and Jamie Andrews. And basically Main Man was formed with Tony Zanetta as vice president of Tony DeFries's record company for um for David. And so David was incredibly influenced, and they were all in love with Angie Bowie, who was the person with the style, not David. And basically, they just put all of Angie's clothes on David. And that's the whole story right there. Yes. I mean, yes, this is quite you know, amazing. David, David was a sponge, you know, he was, he had a wonderful synthesis you know but i mean he wasn't an originator of anything 
No, this is true. I think Jane, Jane County or Wayne County, yes, definitely yeah. had a massive influence. I mean, how important was somebody like Tony DeFries in, in your sort of life? Was he not in my he... life? Nothing, nothing, zilch, zilch. They were playing, they were playing catch up, right? I mean, I was already done 1971. Um, in I in 1971, I was. Andy's newest superstar. I was featured in Women in Revolt. I was being offered record deals um, through Steve Paul, who managed um, Johnny Winter at the time, and who's the person who created. I left, and then he took on Patti Smith in, mm -hmm. instead of me. And the rest is history. The rest is history. How did you get your name Penny Arcade, by the way? I named myself Penny Arcade coming down off LSD because I had, I was staying with this, with Jamie Andrews um, of Main Man, who later of Main Man, but at that time not of Main Man, but in the Playhouse, The Ridiculous. He had taken me in off the street. He was a 27 year old gay guy who I had met in Provincetown, and he saw me. Um, quite homeless in the East Village in 19, um, at the end of 1967 and said, I think you should come and live with me. And I slept on his drawing uh, drafting table. He had a loft bed in a one-room studio. And one night I was coming down off of LSD, making my way home, and I found a paperback book on the cover of a garbage can near the house, and the protagonist was Penny Kincaid. And I'm lying on the drawing table coming down off LSD. And Jamie's alarm went off at that time. He and Tony Ingracia, who directed Pork, were working in a market research company. And I heard Jamie groan. And in my paranoid state coming down off LSD, I thought the groan was about me and that he was going to throw me out. And without thinking, I said, Jamie, I changed my name. I mean, I don't even know where the idea, there was no idea. It just spontaneously burst out of my mouth without any thought. And Jamie being that, you know, very amused and amusing gay man went up on one elbow and said, oh, really, darling, to what? And I said, without thinking, Penny Arcade, because I guess Penny Kincaid was in the back of my mind. And Jamie said, Penny Arcade, that's fabulous. Do you want an egg? And on the days he wasn't annoyed with me, he made me breakfast. And Penny Arcade, and it stuck. Yes. When I when I first started getting noticed at the age of 19, when journalists would ask me why my name was Penny Arcade, I would tell them I was saving my real name, Susanna Ventura, for when I did something good. Now I say, unfortunately, it took so long, I got stuck with Penny Arcade. Yes, this is true. So how did you, I mean, at that age and stage, you know, there was a huge amount going on in the late 60s and early 70s. And obviously, because mm. you'd sort of, had you already starred in, in the Jackie Curtis film, Femme Fatale? Had, had that sort of... That wasn't a film, that was a play. That was a but play. That was that was already, I'd already been doing theatre with the Playhouse, The Ridiculous for two years at that point. So, you know, I was already very, very established 
as an underground theater actress, as an experimental theater actress. And then in 1970, we filmed Andy Warhol's film, Women in Revolt. I think that's what you may be thinking of. Yes, that came. And what was your experience of that particular movie? Because you worked with, was it um, Paul Morrissey at this stage? No, it was Warhol. Warhol, right. I just War, that was that was Warhol's last time behind the camera. He filmed it. It was supposedly, you know, directed by Paul Morrissey, but for heaven's sakes, what did that mean? I mean, there was no direction, you know. <laughs> I mean, there was no script, you know, like so it'd be like, okay, now you're having a meeting. Now you're having a feminist meeting. Go, <laughs> you know, and my lines in the film, I completely improvised. And, you know, I didn't even think I was in the film. I only shot two days. Well, I think I think I shot three times. And, you know, and the film was embargoed for many years because of um, problems between Paul Morrissey and the Warhol estate. And then when it was re re when it was released in 1996, I saw it for the first time and I couldn't even believe that I was in it, you know, because I guess they just didn't have much. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, the the joke is that Andy's camera technique t consisted of turning on the camera and you know hoping for something to happen, and usually he ran out of film before anything happened. Right, yeah. So he became known for making movies where nothing happened. But that wasn't the goal. He just always ran out of film. <laughs> How did you find the atmosphere of the factory, you know, and, and the way people treated each well, other? Well, the factory didn't exist. That's a total fantasy. The factory stopped existing. Um, the silver factory was the hangout. And I would have been 12 years old then, you know. Right. The, the next factory, which was at um, Union Square, really was just offices and studio space. And you only went there to pick up your check, you know. And But the thing is that, um, you know, a lot of the stuff around Andy is a mythology. I mean, first of all, he was a workaholic, so he was always working during the day, you know. And so nobody was like hanging out that that was like 1960 to like 19, you know, 64 or something, you know, that that idea that people have that you join the factory like it was, you know, the French Foreign Legion or something. Um, but the thing was that when I met Andy after he was shot, so he was a huge fan of the Playhouse of the Ridiculous. He came to all our plays and he wanted to get people who were kind of far out, but who were not crazy. You know, he wanted more of an ensemble, uh, an ensemble group, you know? And the great misinformation is the idea that Andy Warhol made people famous because Andy was, a child of the Great Depression. And, you know, in his experience, the people who were rich and powerful, you know, owned movie, were movie producers, owned movie studios. So, you know, he patterned 
the factory, you know, after a move like a 1930s movie studio. He wasn't going to make anybody famous. He thought we were going to make him famous. Right. You know, and the great tragedy around it were that there were a lot of people, you know, with complex issues, shall we say. Um, you know, a lot of people had a lot of mental and emotional problems, and they believed that Andy was going to make them famous, and Andy... Andy, you know, was never going to do anything except do his own work, you know, and if you fit in with his work, then you became part of his um, metier as much as paint or silk screens or paper or whatever. But he was very much a collaborative person. You know, it's it's not like he was, you know, he wasn't like, you know, I don't know who, like um, John Cassavetes or, you know, Jean-Paul Godard, where you go and there's a movie script and, and, and it's there and he's the auteur and this is his vision and you have to stay within these lines of, of the, you know, premise of something. You know, Andy was very much um, influenced by the experimental arts of the early 60s and the late 50s, you know, so there was always huge room for improvisation, et cetera. So like I said, Andy told me personally that he wanted to work with people like me, you know, who were, you know, kind of wild, but not insane, you yes. know. You know, and who could work, who could work in an ensemble way. I mean, I found trying to make the film with Andy difficult because everybody talked at the same time, you know, like people didn't, it was like a demented free for all, you know? Yes. And, tricky one. Yeah. And my, you... yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I mean, I just wondered when you were mentioned about some of the sort of people that, um, you had complex needs. Did you, was there anybody, I mean, was there people that you even then sort of felt a bit, well, not sad by, but just kind of realised they were going to sort of not cope that well? I suppose we're thinking about Edie Sedgwick, aren't we really, and people like that who Well, the quite... thing is that all, everybody in the tribe that I'm from had one fatal flaw, and that was they could not live in the real world. You know, whether it was Jackie Curtis or Candy or Holly, or, um, you know, Andrea Whips or Eric Emerson, you know, any of those people, they, they, they needed a sheltered workshop, you know, and basically the Playhouse of the Ridiculous and the Factory were both sheltered workshops that, that wanted to use the elements that those kind of people contained, you know, like, you know, I mean, the own like, you know, Tab Hunter and um, Sylvia Miles and Udo Kier were all in Warhol films. But that was an anomaly to have a real actor, you know? Yes. It was they mostly used freaks, you know? And and the, the problem with the freaks was they didn't have any concept of acting and... um 
you know, a lot of it was about what you looked like rather than who you were. And then Andy got bored quickly, you know, and dropped them. I mean, I'm the only person who left Andy, you know, <laughs> I found it boring. I just yes. found it boring. I would imagine. But then you leave America, don't you, and travel to to Europe because you've... I went helped. to Amsterdam with the Playhouse of the Ridiculous. And this was... But an, that it, was 1971, February, two, oh, like two days after Patty did her first performance with Lenny Kay at the St. Mark's Poetry Project. And by the way, I introduced Patty to Lenny Kay. And um, I went to see them, you know, Patty read her poetry with Lenny playing bass. And two days later, we left for Amsterdam. And that was a disaster. Vaccaro was out of his mind. And the company, you know, went on strike. And Ellen Stewart of La Mama had to fly in and try to fix it. And we never ended up doing the play we were supposed to do in Amsterdam. And then... I left the company and stayed in Amsterdam and they went on to Belgium and Paris. And then I stayed in Amsterdam for eight months. And then after eight months, I went to Formentera. I went to Ibiza and then Formentera. And I stayed in Formentera, which was right up my alley, like 30 to 50 people playing drums and guitars every night and me dancing and singing, improvising with no audience, you know, just all of us in it together. And that that was the kind of energy that I loved. <clears throat> and there'd be visiting artists like Carol Grimes and from London and other singers with bands would come and they would, you know, be inspired by our free-for-alls. And I did that in the early 70s. and then. In late 73, or maybe in the beginning of 74, I can't remember exactly, I threw the I Ching as hippie girls were wont to do. And I, it said it furthers one to cross the wa great water, it furthers one to see the great man. And I didn't know what that meant. And I had a book of Myrkine fairy tales that had been edited by a man named Robert Graves, who I'd never heard of. And I, he lived in Mallorca. And I said, oh, Mallorca's across the great water. Oh, look at this picture of this man with this great head of white hair. He must be the great man. And I set off to find Robert Graves in Dea. And I did. And uh, <clears throat> I spent a couple of months, you know, every day going to um, another Englishman named Martin Talents, who was a from a Knights Templar family who was paid by his family to stay out of England. <laughs> and he had a salon every day at 4 p.m. that Robert went to each day. And I would go there and listen to them talk about Rome in 7 AD like it was yesterday. And I became friends with Robert Graves. And that went on for a couple of months. He was 78. I was 23. Um, yeah. He he confided in me that he was losing, that he thought he was losing his memory. And we talked about the use of acerola berries, vitamin C. Mm. 
And um, then I ended up uh, one day meeting a political puppet group in the neighboring town of Solière. And I found them very exciting. And then they invited me to join them. And I moved into a big apartment in Palma de Mallorca and did um, uh, subversive anti-Franco political puppet theater all over the island uh, for the better part of a year and then decided I was going to save the poor puppet company <laughs> by getting money by drinking with American sailors for a week. I yeah. had been introduced to this idea through an English woman and um, I went and ended up bringing home a, a Marine, a kid, he probably was my age, 20 years old, and but he was dressed in his camouflage. And the next morning when I went to introduce him to Pep Gomez, Pep, who was an avowed communist, went crazy screaming, Yankee, go home, imperialist pig, go home. And then uh, he threw me out, uh, threw me out. And so I ended up uh, following the USS Forrestal to Mentone, France. And they got called away to an emergency in Cyprus. And I wandered back to um, Mallorca and found out that the police were looking for me because they thought that I was selling hashish in weight um, to the USS Forrestal. Of course, they figured out that they had me mixed up with some woman in her late thirties, but then they they tried to they blackmailed me basically into becoming a informer, and they could because the way Spain was at that time, uh, they they told me they could just send me to prison, no. you know, with no trial or anything in Madrid, and so I phoned my mother and asked her to send me a, an airline ticket to be left at the airport. And I went back to the police and said I had thought about it. And actually, I think I could be an informer. I mean, after all, I'm an actress. <laughs> and I went on with that sort of rubbish for a few minutes. And I said, yes, I can do it. I will do it. And then I said, but my sister is getting married, which was actually true. And I said, I have to go back for the wedding. And he, the jefe said, absolutely not. And I said, but she's my only sister. And then he said I could go for a week. And I said, no, I have to go for two weeks. And he finally agreed to that. And meanwhile, I packed my trunk and shipped it. And, and I left. And I left Spain and didn't return for 16 years. Yes. And in that time, I came back to the United States. It was 1974. I found New York stifling. It wasn't interesting to me. I ended up going to live with my mother in Connecticut. I'd never done that since I was, um, I mean, I'd lived there for a few months when I got out of reform school, out of Borstal. And then I met a man who was a leathersmith and a, sculptor and a guitar player and he had um he had a cabin and land in northern maine 
And we went there in the middle of winter with no running water, no electricity, no inside plumbing. And I lived there with him for a few years, playing music, doing experimental theater. Then he died in a canoeing accident. And I had just taken over a local theater, and I did that for a couple of years. And then 1980 rolled around, and Ellen Stewart of La Mama with John Vaccaro invited me to come back to New York to reprise my role in Nightclub from 1970. And that's how I came back to New York and started doing my own work. Right. Yes, this is this is a new chapter, a new decade. So did that feel quite interesting, meeting some of those characters again that you hadn't seen for a, quite a few years? and seen Well, things had changed. There had been a, a huge change in the late 70s. Um, there was a huge change because prior to that, people came to New York and you ended up in the underground. You know, like people say, I wish I was cool enough to be in the underground. Well, you didn't have to be cool. You just had to be willing. <laughs> you know, if, they, if that if that was what That's you true. were interested in, you would kind of gravitate there. But in the mid mid set mid to late seventies, everything changed because because of the underground newspapers and magazines, particularly the rock magazines, that were all all you know led by. Um, journalists like Danny Fields and Lisa Robinson. So there was Rock Scene and Crawdaddy and um, Cream, those magazines. They all focused on people who were from around Maxis. So they, you know, either people wrote, like Patti Smith, for instance, wrote for Rock Scene and wrote for Crawdaddy, right? Um but they were all promoting, they were all aimed at preteens, you know, at young, young, young people. And so they wrote about David Johansson and they wrote about Wayne County and they, you know, wrote about all of that sort of stuff. And then you had the Village Voice, you know, which was um, available all over the country, the alternative newspaper. And then by the by 1977, I believe, you had the Soho News. So you had all, all of these people all over America who were in art school or who were, you know, the kind of people who were interested in arty things. They were all reading those magazines and newspapers for years, and they all migrated en masse to the East Village. And that created a very different milieu because it was not organic. You know, like they didn't even know, they didn't know who Jack Smith was. They didn't know who the Playhouse of the Ridiculous was. They didn't know who, um, you know, the living theater was. They, they were not those, they were not those kind of people. They knew about Andy Warhol and they were all lonely for Andy and they all wanted to be Warhol superstars. So they all started making their own art, which was a kind of rec room art. So Club 57, Area, all these places that the Mud Club, 
all of those places that popped up were by arty kids, you know, and most of it was not intergenerational the way the underground had been intergenerational. This was now monogenerational. Everybody was the same age. And frankly, when I became exposed to, you know, the Mud Club and Club 57, you know, I found it not that appealing, you know, because it was, they were very buzzy about pop culture. So like Club 57 would do events where they would like recreate, let's recreate beach blanket bingo or, you know, um, you know, Elvis movies or Anne Margaret. I mean, it was, I found it really tedious, you know, it was, I needed something darker. I needed something with more gravitas to it. And that's when I started making my own work in 1982. Right. This is it. This is after you'd... Yeah, and also, I guess, at that stage, there'd been the sort of... Uh, New York had got a bit of wash with, I suppose, heavy, hard drugs. And and also the AIDS, um, you know... Well, was, was... I mean, yeah, I mean, it was more... You know, really, it was cocaine, you know, because what you had were you know, the natural brethren of these hipsters, because they were hipsters, that's what they were, was their natural brethren who were the MBAs, you know, mas you know, masters in business, you know, who were Wall Street. So those nightclubs were filled with, you know, hipsters and stockbrokers, right. you know, and, and that was the milieu Whereas Max's Kansas City in 1968, late 68, when I started going there, that was filled with intellectuals and junkies and weirdos. But, you know, whether they did drugs or not was not the defining um, element to who they were. But yes. so, you know, that was like a kind of a meeting of high art and 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 street level things right which created a lot of possibilities what happened in the 80s was middle class meets the professional class you know so that was pretty tiresome but there the thing was that people were superseded like robert maplethorpe who had been a friend of mine Robert, Robert Maplethorpe became famous and eclipsed Peter Hujar, you know, which could never be, you know, I mean, Peter Hujar was a genius, you know, and Maplethorpe was very influenced by, by Peter Hujar, but Peter Hujar was erased, you know, Jack Smith was erased and Cindy Sherman was elevated, you know, it was bullshit, it was capitalism, you know. Yes, crikey, this is a, this is um, yeah, this is so true. But when your your first piece, your first performance piece, was this uh, Tinseltown tirade? That was that was not mine. That was Hibiscus. Right. You know, Hibiscus Hibiscus formed the Cockettes and then was thrown out of the Cockettes because he didn't want to charge money. 
and all those lovely people who felt that they had they were so amazing to watch swan around on stage wanted to charge money and so they threw hibiscus out so then hibiscus formed the angels of light and then after the angels of light hibiscus was hibiscus and the wild violets right which were his sisters and he did a play called tinseltown tirade and jackie curtis brought me to be in the play and I would improvise during the breaks and do Andrea Whips, who was a Warhol affiliate, you know, a backroom personality at Max's who had died in 1972. And I would perform her to amuse Jackie. Yes. And one day, um, Hibiscus said, listen, you know, what you're doing when you improvise is so much better than what I wrote. Would you do it in the show? And I talked it over with Jackie Curtis and Jackie said, you have to get a writing credit. So I was afraid to ask him, you know, I was, I have a great streak of timidity in me, which is why I always, I often go too far out trying to push past my timidity. But I said, asked him and he said, yes, of course. And so I wrote my own character in Hibiscus's play Tinseltown tirade. And then over the course of the rehearsals for that show, which started in November of 1981 and, you know, went into February of 82, when we started performing um, Hibiscus Contracted AIDS, which was still called GRID. And actually, he was the first person who officially died of. AIDS, acquired immune deficiency. But, you know, on the strength of that experience, I started doing that that performance in other places. And eventually, in 1985, I did my first full-length show. And that was the beginning of my professional career. Yes. Did that feel quite a relief when you managed to um, take the baton and decide that was you were going to be? No, I didn't know. I didn't have, I wasn't that kind of person. I'm, I'm, there is nothing, um, there's nothing premeditated about me. I was not Robert and Patty in 1971 who, you know, decided they were artists and that they were going to be artists and, you know, um, kind, you know, you know, Robert was the ring leader there with Patty, you know, um, he supported Patty 100%, but it was his vision, you know, that they were not students. They were not neophytes. They were full fledged artists and, setting out to monetize it you know so I was not that person I was always you know I have the soul of a poet I'm a I'm um an erratic being I go where the day takes me yes. you know I'm not I, I'm not contrived I'm not um I'm not specific you know, it's taken me years and years and years and years to do 
to have the mindset that Robert had when he was 23, you know, all of my work all through the 80s and 90s, I was anti-product, but I videoed all my work. I just wouldn't sell it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was I was a live act. You had to come and see me live and um, and a live action act because I didn't rehearse. And I created the work live in front of the audience. And, and I still do with, um, for instance, with the new show, Superstar Interrupted, we just did three performances at Joe's Pub, which is a very posh, upscale uh, nightclub, the preferred performance place for many people. Um, and, you know, I hadn't even read the script before. Right. You know, and but my audience has watched me do that for close to 40 years. They expect that from me. So I can sell tickets for a show that doesn't exist and and fuck around with it in front of the audience, you know, and um, and, you know, at 72, which is my current age. I was a bit taken aback this time going, whose idea was this, you know? <laughs> but, yeah. you know, I wrote six songs for it. Um, you know, it was weird, you know? I mean, I did the songs with, like, no rehearsal, you know? We had rehearsed uh, three times with the band, but it was mostly for the musicians to learn the music because the music was... Kind I wrote the music, but it was arranged by Chris Rail because it was strings, cello, viola, and guitar. So it was kind of complex. So, you know, I would run through the songs, you know, once or twice, but the rehearsals were really about the music, not about me. So, but now I'm doing one show on Thursday night, February 9th, before we leave for Australia on February 11th. And um, we went into the studio. We recorded full backing tracks with drums, bass, and guitar, and viola, and cello. So I'm really, really excited. And I've been having a lot of fun, um, uh, you know, um, uh, doing the shows. You know, rehearsing and getting ready uh, for Australia. Yes, absolutely. But, it, but I... But it did give me pause, I must say, <laughs> like not rehearsing, you know. Yes. I mean, because obviously just going back slightly, just a bit, but your your big show, Bitch, Dyke, Fag, 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 and Fag, Hag, Whore, yes. This this is one that kind of, you've you know, has, has done so well for you, hasn't it? I mean, this is... Well, yes. Of... I mean, it's been performed over 800 times in 37 cities around the world. And we're still doing it. I mean, I wrote it in 1990. The last time I did it was 2019 in Australia. And all I did was I changed two sentences. I changed 1990 to 2019. And I changed Bush to Trump. Everything else is the same in the script because nothing has changed. Yes, absolutely. And that's been quite frightening. That was been, you know, yeah. several decades and um yes, the still the same scene. Yeah. 
Yes. So did, um, I mean, just, I mean, if you could have went to, to sort of whispered something to your like 16 year old self starting out, even if that person might have ignored it, is there anything in particular that you would have said, oh, yes, that would have been a good idea or a good thing to have focused on? Well, I think what I would have said to myself was, you know, tell tell somebody what you want to do and ask them how to do it. You know, I wanted to be a photographer and, you know, Jamie Andrews was a photographer and I lived with him. But, you know, he I asked him to show me, um, you know, F stops and he showed me once. And he became annoyed with me because, you know, I didn't get it right away because I was dyslexic. And, um, you know, I, I didn't I didn't understand, you know, you know, Robert and Patty had both been to school. You know, I had, you know, I had gone to school till I was 15 years old. I I never went to high school and. I didn't understand that you could study something. You know what I mean? Like, I just thought you had to be innately. For instance, I was innately an extraordinary performer. I was always a great performer. Nobody had to teach me how to perform, right? So my belief was that you just either knew how to do something or you didn't. You know, I didn't have any, I mean, honestly, I didn't understand really come to understand that till I was in my fifties. You know what I mean? And you know that oh, you mean I because you know I'm a, I'm I'm an organic intellectual, right? I write essays. I'm you know uh, interviewed in all kinds of BBC programs and whatever you know about art history. I would have adored to go to university and and read art history, you know, I just didn't realize that I could. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, it's very odd to be me, you know? Um, so I'm, I'm just getting dressed um, to go out while we talk. Yes. Would you ask me? Yeah. I mean, just, just as, as, as so we brushed slightly over the last two the last two decades how did you how have you managed to sort of keep um kind of not losing it or losing the plot or yeah I mean I don't know it's because my curiosity is my most elevated trait you see and I'm so interested in so many things and so one of the things that I think is quite interesting about me is that unlike, I'm, I mean, I'm the only person from the 1960s who I was performing with in the 1960s who's still performing. I'm, I'm the only one from the whole performance art scene of the 1980s who didn't become an academic and is still performing full time, you know? So, you know, and I think part of that is that the people that I admired, you know, I'm I'm very big on lineage, you know, and my lineage is, you know, the the living theater and the whole, you know, uh, you know, the whole practice, the whole idea of being 
a life, a lifelong artist, you know, like I'm just, I'm just hitting my stride right now. I'm just, as a matter of fact, <clears throat> this show that I'm doing now, this episode, Superstar Interrupted, is the show I would have done in 1973 <laughs> um, if if I had stayed in New York. Right. You know? So yes. it's, it's So it's fun, you know what I mean? Because there won't be any sitting around drinking tea and watching telly and thinking about when I was young, you know? Because that's not me. And I mean, even, you know... Someone like Patty, you know, much of what she's celebrated for is what she did in the 70s, you know. And, you know, you know, I think Patty, I think Patty is quite extraordinary, but she's not as extraordinary as she was when I knew her, you no. know. Because, well, because she was such an original, you know, she was so original and and not so much about art, but in her being, she was such an original, but she really, you know, she really wanted, you know, to be a rock star, you know, she really wanted that, you know, yes. and, and all I wanted was, I mean, what we have in common still, you know, and Patty talks about this is that you know, we both wanted to do good work, you know, but see, the thing is that I was, I was about development. You know, I, I thought I had to develop before I presented anything. And Robert, you know, influenced Patty to the idea of, no, you're ready now, you know? So I think that's a very interesting thing, you know, and I, the last time I saw Patty, we talked about it a little bit because she accidentally heard me perform and cause I was performing outside and she was uh, across the street with Lenny at a restaurant um, having lunch. And <laughs> when I realized when I was done and walked out of the park, I saw I saw Lenny, so then I knew I, that Patty would be there, and uh, I went over to them because in the piece that I did, it's a line from "Longing Lasts Longer," which I did, I did in Norwich. Oh, excellent! Um, which has the line in it: um, "People associate me uh, when I talk when I when I tell people what I miss about New York." People think I'm talking about the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. They um, they associate me with that lost glory. Like in Patti Smith's book, Just Kids. People come up to me on the street and they say, Oh, Penny Arcade, I read about you in Patti Smith's book, Just Kids. And I say, Well, you read my name in Patti's book. And then I say... Um, they associate me with that lost glory. But you see, I've been kept underground and I and I experienced those decades only as glorious defeat. I guess you could say I outramboed Patty. 
(laughs) So when I saw Patty there, I was like, oh, my God. Well, now she's heard it. So I went over and uh, Lenny was like an iguana. He was like absolutely not moving, not. He saw me coming. He just didn't breathe. And uh, because I think Patty can be mercurial. And uh, so (laughs) Patty had her back to me. And then I went up to her and I went, oh. I said, hey, how about that? I said, talk about synchronicity. And Patty said, oh, my God, you were so great. As soon as I heard you, I knew it was you, man. You've got that same energy. you got that same performance energy like John Giorno, man. And I went, wow, Patty, that's the biggest compliment you could give me. I said, because I've been inspired by many people, but John Giorno is one of the few people who influenced me. And... And then I said, oh, my God, Patty, you're the first person who took me to see John Giorno in 1969. And then I said, well, Patty, I said, you know, I should say, you know, you you also influenced me. I, and she said, nah, man, we influenced each other. And I said, well, you didn't influence my work. I said, but you influenced my life because she did. Mm. You know, she 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 was the only person. I had ever met who felt the same way I did that, that we were on the planet to actualize ourselves, that we were the witnesses to greatness and that she and I both believed that the Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, (laughs) whoever were talking directly to us. And when we discovered that we both felt that way, and it was something we really couldn't tell people because people would think we were crazy. That kind of sealed the thing. And Patty herself wrote to me in 1971 when I wrote her and told her I wasn't coming back to New York, no matter how tragic it would be for my career. She wrote me and said, well, you and me were the same, only opposite. My anger pulls me, it puts me in doorways and your anger pulls me, it pulls you into caves. So. There was always Patty understood me, you know, that I was, I guess, already, you know, despite the fact that I was already a superstar and was very, very well known as a underground theater performer. There was probably always the element that I wasn't going to go for a career. So now I must go. I must go, my dear, because I have (laughs) I have to go. And um, get a vaccine for India, because after after um, Australia, I'm going to India. Nice. Well, look, I yeah. hope it all goes really well, and I hope you come to the UK again soon. So. Well, I will. I'm. I mean, I definitely. We have to bring a superstar inter- interrupted to Norwich. Absolutely. Yes. You'll love the songs. You'll. I wrote the songs are really good, and I think you'll quite like it. I'm really looking. Um, <coughs> oh, sorry. I'm looking forward to it. Anyway, look, you must go and get your vaccines and um, okay. have a great year and, and hopefully see you live soon, he says. Okay, perfect. Thanks care, so Penny. much. Thanks a lot. Take care. It's been fun. Oh, yeah. And, Bye. And, and um, hopefully you write, yeah, get to write your book soon. Well, yeah. Well, I'm writing it, you know, and believe me, the book's going to be a corker. Excellent. Excellent. Archive those pictures as well. Anyway, cool. take care. Lots of love. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye. And that is the end of the interview, just in case you didn't gather that. 
Anyway, thank you, a massive thank you to Penny Arcade for giving me the time for that. Uh, this has been the C86 Show. I'm David Easter. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, just do C86 Show. You will find them. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.